podcast one production. The other night, and it always happens when I've got a 12-hour day in front of me, Ella slept like rubbish. And for whatever reason, my little bubba girl was up every couple of hours. And at three in the morning, Tim brought her into the bed, which we normally try not to do. And she thought it was party time and she was like batting our faces, like having like slapping us across the face and laughing. And she thought it was really funny. And I'm like, what are you doing? And and so I picked her up and put her back into bed. He goes, isn't it six? I'm like, no, it's three in the morning. Oh my goodness. And when the alarm went off, I just, I, I think a tear actually did come out of my eye. I don't know about you, but ever since having kids, sleep has become the absolute cornerstone of existence for me. (laughs) It is literally the difference between harmony or hell in my household. And if we have a tired mama and tired kids, watch out world. This is Healthy Her with Amelia Phillips. And in this episode, I want to get to the bottom of why once we become a mum, we never quite sleep as well. Well, I know I don't. I also want to find out how we can get a better night's sleep and what we can do to thrive when we are feeling sleep deprived. So I've enlisted the help of a sleep whisperer. Dr. Carmel Harrington has dedicated over 28 years to researching sleep. She runs a sleep clinic called Sleep for Health, and it's for people who have trouble getting to sleep or staying asleep. Hi, Carmel. Good morning, Amelia. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. Now, sleep is such a hot topic for us mums, and I know it can either make me or break me. Why is sleep so important? Well, you know, every animal sleeps and we are meant to sleep about a third of our lives. And we do that because it's essential to how we think, feel and perform. And we perform vital functions in our sleep that we cannot do when we're awake. And people forget that. They think they can skimp on sleep and still be okay, be a bit tired and that's all. But that's way not the, the, the landscape at all because we perform these unique physiological functions in our body and in our brain that actually set us up for good health, both physically and mentally the next day and actually good behaviour. So what are those vital functions that we're doing while we're sleeping? Well, um, our body is very busy repairing, restoring and refreshing our um, bodily systems. Like, so for example, our cardiovascular system, our respiratory system, our nervous system. So when we're in deep sleep, the rest of the body is very quiet. And what's happening is it's the only opportunity in 24 hours that these systems get a chance to repair and restore. And in fact, we're very busy secreting these beautiful growth hormones that keep our metabolism on par and well for the next day. In our brain, we're doing most amazing stuff. One of the things we do in our sleep is we cleanse our brain. So during sleep, and we can't do this when we're awake, during sleep, our spinal fluid washes over our brain and washes all the um, toxic metabolic byproducts out so that we have a healthy brain long into the future. And believe it or not, if we don't get enough sleep on a regular basis, we have twice the risk for dementia and three times the risk for cognitive decline. And so what we need to do is keep our brain healthy and clean and fresh every single night. And the other things we do is we bed down memory. So learning and learning and memory and processes, we think we do during the day. And that's step one. Step two is 
when we go to sleep at night, the hippocampus, the amygdala, they're very, very busy processing these memories and putting them in the right file. So the next day that we're, you know, we're pretty well on board. And when we don't get enough sleep, you know how some teenagers pull all-nighters before that? I mean, some of your listeners will be going, yeah, 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 my daughter does that or I used to do it. We actually lose about 40 to 50% of our encoding ability. So we actually lose 40% of the information we've been exposed to during the day. So, And the other thing we do, of course, is reset our emotional centre. And that means that when we're well slept, we're patient, we're engaged with our life, we're enthusiastic when we play with our children. And when we're poorly slept, because we haven't rebalanced our emotional centre, we act more from the emotional centre. And so you and I and everyone out there, when we're not slept well enough, are going to be grumpy when we're not slept, we're going to be probably not as tolerant with our children, frustrated with our partner, not great team workers. So there's all those sorts of things that we do in sleep that set us up for a good wakeful period every day. Wow. I, <laughs> just hearing that it makes so much, me, I know, it? it's remarkable. <laughs> I, I just thought I was laying there still and <laughs> see what happens. Well, talk to me about the impacts of chronic sleep deprivation over a period of time? Yeah, look, they're quite substantial and um, we're beginning to see that at a public health level. So we actually sleep about 20 to 20, on average, 20 to 25% less than our grandparents did in 1960. So they used to sleep for an average of 8.5 hours and the working adult now sleeps for an average of 6.8 hours per night during the working week. Now, I know many people out there will be nodding their head and say, yeah, that's us. Well, over 50 years, our biological needs haven't changed um, and our grandparents used to get you know, 20% more sleep. And so what we're seeing is this increase in metabolic ill health. So that is evidenced by the increase in type 2 diabetes, obesity, overweight. And we're also seeing a decrease in our mental health. And depression is now the number one um, chronic ill health, um, mental health issue in the Western world. It's affecting our young at a great, great rate. And we know that lack of sleep really uh, increases five times your risk of getting depression. So we're looking at big public health issues. So we know in the long term, if you don't get enough sleep, you're 50% more likely to be obese, you're 50% more likely to have high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes, you're twice as likely to have a heart attack or stroke twice to three times more likely to develop dementia. So massive issues like that in the long term. But of course, there are the short term consequences that we spoke about earlier, being grumpy, not being a good thinker, you know, all those sorts of things. I remember a reasonably well-known study that I came across that was looking at the impacts of sleep deprivation on the military and yes. how that was impacting their performance. Have you come across that study? Yes, look, we've got a, you know, um, the if you remember or anyone remembers the Iraqi, uh, the first Iraqi war. Um, in the 90s? In the early 90s, yeah. Yep. So in that war, there was something they called euphemistically friendly fire. Now, in this friendly fire, the US troops fired on US troops and there was fatality. So the US military spent a lot of money trying to work out what was the best amount of, what's the minimum amount of sleep that they their troops could have so they were battle ready because the friendly fire was put down to um, lack of sleep. So we have a lot to thank the US military for finding out so much about what goes on when we're sleep deprived and a lot of our work and our understanding now comes from those studies. So what one of the issues is that when we are sleep deprived, 
we lose a lot of our brain function. So for example, you might make a decision um, or the military might make a decision to go into battle at six o'clock in the morning the next day. So they're up late working out this strategy. They're up at three o'clock in the morning. So they might've got three hours sleep. So they're ready to go at six o'clock in the morning, but something really odd happens. They get information that troops are coming from somewhere else or the weather's changed or whatever. Now, the odd thing is that when we are sleep deprived, we can't process that new information. We are much more likely to go with plan A than be able to process that new information and fit it within the scope of the plan. So what studies have shown is that people, military who are well slept are able to take that new information on board and actually can change the plan. But when you're poorly slept, you, you stick to plan A because you actually can't take on board this new information and you're, you're cognitively so deprived that it's you can't actually understand how else to go but with plan A. And so that's really got huge impacts, not only in the military, but with everything that we do in life. It was funny when I read this study, I straight away thought about being a mum and how similar it is to being in the (laughs) army or being in the military (laughs) in that you're getting woken at 3am in the morning, you're sleep deprived, you've got um, fire coming at you, which in the form of emotional, unpredictable (laughs) children. And you have plan A, which is to get out of the house at a certain time with a school uniform or a bag packed. And then, you know, something happens because friendly fire of wheat bix across the room and suddenly you have to get changed or they have to get changed. Um, uh, what was, because one of the purposes of this study was to find out what the minimum amount of sleep to be able to function well was. Was there a number that they came up with? <laughs> yeah. And can us mums have that number, please? <laughs> well, it's really interesting because as adults, we need between seven to nine hours. So the minimum number was seven hours, actually. And that's what we knew before they went into all this study. But there is some, you know, there's some provisos around this. So All of it, not all of us, about 95% of the population need between seven to nine hours. Now, that is individual. So you might need eight and a half, I might need seven and a half. We need to know what our personal body needs. Um, But there are about 2% of the population, the short sleepers, they they can get away with five to six hours when the rest of us need seven to nine. And there's long sleepers as well. So some of us need more than nine hours sleep also. But within that, so... If you're sort of, and I know this doesn't happen with parenting, but just imagine you're in business or you're about to do a military exercise. You can actually sort of bank your sleep, not a lot, but if you get exactly what you need, you you sort of got for the, if you need eight and a half, if you've been getting eight and a half hours sleep for, you know, five nights, then if you've got a two nights where you're only getting six, you're going to be okay. But it's going to be hard still being okay on the third night of six hours. By that time, your body starts to really feel the deficit because sleep debt is cumulative. So it does add up day after day after day. So we can... um, as mums, as you say, it's very unpredictable. And funnily enough, we do tend to stick to plan A. When we're in that situation, don't we think, oh, no matter what, I've got to get to school at nine o'clock. Well, really, the world won't sink if you don't. But all of a sudden, that becomes the most important mission in life. You've yep. got to get there. You've got to get there. Because actually, in, in an odd way, it becomes a mark of your parenting. You know, yeah. you sort yeah. of catastrophize things. Yeah. Yep. So, but if you can manage... Um, you know, your your seven to nine hours sleep, but you can have a couple of nights where you're not getting what you need. And the way mums, and I always recommend this, especially for parents of newborns, 
One of the, and especially your firstborn, you know, you're so in love with your firstborn baby that mum and dad both get up and you adore this little thing. And after a couple of weeks, this is really, you know, exhausting and no one's really very happy, but you sort of don't know how to stop doing that. So you need to get on average, as I say, seven to nine hours in a 24-hour period. So if for a couple of nights in a row, you've got less than what you need, which could be eight hours, could be seven, on your third night, you need to reset the clock and get what you need. So that means that either mum or dad who haven't been getting the sleep they need, they're on duty, right? The other person gets to sleep through. Now for breastfeeding mums, that means it's got to be a bit of planning ahead and, you know, expressing your milk, but it actually does work and it can save people's sanity because if you're getting broken sleep and averaging, you know, four or five hours night after night, you're not a great mum, you're not a great dad. I can remember it Mm. impacting me Mm. to a point where I, when I heard the babies cry, it was, it was like a stab in the heart and my body, it was this primal reaction that I had no control over. I, I would break out in a sweat and I would jump and I would feel sick just because I was so exhausted. And Mm. that was a real warning bell for me. And But what I have found is years later, you know, my oldest is now six, I have never slept as well since before having children. What do you say to mums who might be out of the baby stage, but they just, your sleep's just never the same? Is that a kind of post-traumatic thing or is it different for different people? Um. So the question I would ask first, when you have to be away from your children, maybe for work, you travel, do you sleep well there? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so well. So what what happens, of course, is we're biological animals first and foremost. So your child's cry or your child's call out will wake you really, really quickly. You could have other children in the house that call out and you won't wake. <laughs> They've done these studies. It's really quite remarkable that you will wake to your baby's cry or your your child's um, call out. And so it's not actually a post-traumatic stress, although sometimes I might feel like it is. <laughs> it's actually your biological um Instinctive, instinctive lioness reaction. in the den. Yeah. So again, and a lot of us aren't in this position where we have a partner. So often we're on our own, so we have to do that at all times anyway. But if you are uh, with a partner, then again, adult conversations around, I can't get up tonight, I don't want to. So when, you know, little Bobby cries or calls out, it's your, you have to go because I can't do it. Again, um, we have adult conversations about what we're going to eat. If you were saying to your partner or your friend, look, I really need to go and do some exercise, I'd probably nod and go, that's really good, that's really great, you need to do that. But sometimes if you say, oh, I just really need to go home and have a sleep, they look at you think, what are you doing? But from where I come from, my sleep is more important than my exercise. I'm not going to sacrifice sleep for exercise. I'll fit exercise in around, you know, with a, you can do five minute intense exercise or whatever, but I'm not going to sacrifice an hour of sleep for an hour in the gym. It just doesn't happen to me. Well, it's really interesting to hear you say that because you're talking to somebody who would 
always sacrifice sleep for mm. a workout. So I'm curious to to hear about this and understand this because there are a lot of us mums out there that are very keen to get back into exercise. And really, sometimes the best time of the day to exercise is before the kids have woken up or first thing in the morning. Are you giving us a leave pass to <laughs> hit the snooze button? So where I start from, so if we go back a little bit, we've got 24 hours, right? So everyone's got 24 hours. I try to divide the day into three pies, eight hours, and, and typically if you're a worker, um, many of us are, we're working mums, um, you have eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, and eight hours of other, right? So whenever we have to work a little bit more or we want to do the exercise, where do we normally take from? We take from our sleep, right? So, and we often just sleep what we've got left over. That's the other. But for me, I start off with, okay, eight hours of sleep. I often work more than eight hours a day. Many of us do. And so if I work 10 hours a day, then I have to take some from my other. So I plan my day so that sleep is a priority. So on those days that I can't go for my run, you know, and really we don't have to be in the gym for an hour, an hour and a half, 20 minutes of good cardiovascular, I run around the block. And I remember when my kids were little and I was a single mum and I couldn't leave the children for to go off to the gym. And I remember when, they, you know, they'd have a half hour show. I think they were about 11 and 13 or 10 and 12 actually. So it was quite brave of me to leave them in the house and I would just run around the block and check on them and then I'd run around the block again. So you can fit in that incidental exercise. But so many of us, because exercise has been commercialised so much, we used to get incidental exercise, you know, and we don't get that anymore because we will take a car instead of running to where we need to go or walking. So sometimes we get that incidental exercise. But I think it's important to contextualise sleep now so sleep's become the topic of the day, hasn't it? Lots of people know, understand or think, oh, my God, I'm not getting enough sleep. I just didn't know sleep was so important. But if I go back to the 19, mid-1970s, like 1975, there was a campaign called Norm the Life Beginner Campaign because about 10, you know, 10 years earlier, mid-60s, um, early 60s, everyone started to get a, a car. And so we lost incidental exercise. And after about 10 or 15 years, the government started to see this, you know, weight gain and sedentary norm. So they had to give an education campaign about the importance of exercise. But before that, we used to exercise just normally anyway. And about 10 years on from that, in mid-1980s, they had another campaign called Norm, um, the More or Less Diet, because we forget there was a time in the early 70s and before that, there was no supermarkets, there was no fast food, there was no easy access to food. And all of a sudden, Norm could eat whenever and wherever he liked, and it didn't take a lot lot of effort. And so Norm lost the concept of what was good food. Food was food, but actually we know food isn't food. So we've been exercised, we've been taught. So even when I talk to little kids at preschools and at schools, little five-year-olds would know the difference between the choice between an apple and a chocolate. They might choose the chocolate, but they know apple's a healthy one. So if we go now, we're now in a, a sleeplessness crisis. Lots of studies are showing that around the world. But if you go back 10 years, what happened about 10 years before now? The mobile devices. And so everyone has their device in their pocket, by their bed, next to their pillow. And so we are on call 24-7. So this is the first time in the history of 
humans that we've been able to extend our day over and over. So we can shop at three o'clock in the morning. We can do whatever we like. And we lost respect for sleep because we thought sleep was something we used to do at the end of the day. So now people are recognising in the context of sleep deprivation, all of a sudden we go, oh my gosh, I'm not so happy, I'm overweight, I'm not enthusiastic, I'm all this sort of stuff. And is that really due to sleep? Maybe I should exercise some more. No, go to sleep. Talk to me about your top tips for getting better sleep. Well, not surprisingly, one of them is is switching off. (laughs) Physically, metaphorically. In every single way. (laughs) Digitally. (laughs) So one hour before bedtime, you set an alarm. And at that time, you switch off. You switch off your... All your devices, you switch off your TV, you dim the lights in the room that you're in and you start to bring your level of activity both physically and mentally right down. Can I just jump in there? Mm. And when you say switching off your devices, surely not all devices are equal. Take, for example, uh, your mobile phone, like sitting there scrolling through versus watching a Netflix show. Now, I love those really slow, dark Norwegian thrillers. They've got really sexy men in them. I love the accents. I love the cold weather. But they're very slow and surely that's not nearly as bad as, you know, jumping on the social media, getting all the bings and bing bangs and all that. Um, Well, there's two ways of looking at that. Yes and no. So obviously the very um, high resolution uh, smartphone or computer is disastrous because we've got so much light and activity in front of us, our brain can't settle down and nor can we get our beautiful melatonin produced. But when we're watching the film noir, as you're talking about, um, it can actually, if you're tired at the end of the day, do you ever find that you might fall asleep? Yes, <laughs> yes which is good. That's why I like it. So one of the issues, if you fall asleep in front of the TV and you wake up half an hour later or whatever, and then you go into the bedroom to fall asleep. Often we can't. This might not be you, but a lot of people then cannot because what's happened is they've, you have this thing called sleeping neurotransmitters and, and when you go to sleep, they start to go off. They go down, they degrade. So it tells the brain you're not as tired if it sees less of this neurotransmitter. So when you've used 20 minutes of your time sleeping in front of the TV, you've actually got to get up, you know, probably brush your teeth, do a few things that actually arouse you so when you go to bed, you lay there and you can't get to sleep. Now, this may not be problematic for many people. It could, you know, when I say you may not be able to get to sleep, it might only take you five or ten minutes. But there's going to be some people who um, when they go to bed and they can't sleep, they start to get very anxious. And so they start to produce the adrenaline and the cortisol because they're the awake hormones and you can feel yourself getting high anxiety because I've got to be on the ball for the next day and blah, blah, blah. And so for those people, believe it or not, very quickly they can start to associate bed with wakefulness. So these people will want to always watch TV before they go to sleep and then they'll go to bed and not be able to sleep. So that's when they come to me a year later. (laughs) So we've got to be really careful about the habits we start to set up. So I just would caution in that regard. So devices off, set your alarm for an hour before bed, devices off or down. Yep. What else? Um, 
dim the lights, of course. Um, you have a warm to hot shower because the body likes to fall asleep on a falling temperature. It tricks the body into thinking, oh, the temperature's going down. So that's a very strong stimulus for the brain to get ready for go to sleep. And, you know, I love breathing. If, if you have trouble going to sleep, use the last 10 or 15 minutes that time before you go to sleep to do something that's relaxing. So a breathing exercise or some yoga, there's some fabulous yoga postures for sleep. They're really, really good. And they take five minutes and you don't have to be a highly trained yoga. Often people hear yoga and think, oh, I can't do yoga. But these are very simple postures. And so they will help. So Carmel, how should we be winding down at the end of the day? Or right. what you do, maybe. I'm sure it's best practice. <laughs> what you do to wind down at the end of the day. Is it is it that or is there something else that you do? I'd love to think I did the right thing all the time, but of course I don't. So um, how we sleep is affected by what we do in our wakeful hours and what we do in our wakeful hours affects our sleep. Okay. So how we sleep actually starts the morning you wake up. So when you wake up, um, in the morning, you offset production of melatonin. And when you offset melatonin, which is our master hormone, you actually set up your 24-hour cycles, use all your circadian rhythms because the melatonin is, is the clock setter. So when I get up at six o'clock in the morning and I off-switch production of melatonin, about 16 hours later, I'll be ready to go back to sleep if I'm in a position to do so. So that means I get up at six o'clock and I'm ready to go to sleep at 10. Now, if I start getting up at nine o'clock, then I'm not going to be ready to go to bed till one o'clock in the morning. So people need to get up at the same time every day, expose themselves to bright light, okay? I've heard this before, that waking up at the same time every day is really a, a really crucial part to it is really, healthy sleep. It is really, really important. And as a young mum, if you've got children waking up at three o'clock in the morning, try to keep everything pretty dark. You know, you don't turn on lights to, unless it's crucial, you know, someone's been vomiting or something. But other than that, try to keep everything very low low light because in low light you'll still produce melatonin. But when it is time to get up, and this is really good training for your children, even bubs, the sooner you start exposing them to a, a wake, um, a light, dark cycle, you'll start to entrain that circadian rhythm and you cannot start doing that early enough. Right, really important to start doing that even when you bring bub home from hospital to entrain the circadian rhythms. So, okay, you get up at the same time every day. It's really important. Exercise is important in the story of sleep. But as I say, you only need 20 minutes um, when you increase your cardiovascular activity. But if you want to do gym, that's great. That's fantastic. And the best time to do it is about five o'clock in the afternoon when our cardiovascular strength is at a peak. But it's also okay to do it in the morning. It works as well. Um, good um, whole foods. Now, processed foods, when you're on the run, that's fine, but you're not getting your vitamins and minerals. You need to produce your melatonin. So a good, you know, nut, whole grains, fruit and vegetable. I know we hear it over and over again. We hear it from our mother and our grandmother, but it actually does really work. Tryptophan as well, foods containing tryptophan, like whether it's dairy products, that do you find, is that something that's important in your sleep clinic or well, not really? we actually should be getting enough. That's just one of the many, many amino acids that we need to in, um, take in every day from our food. But where tryptophan can actually work, um, so tryptophan's in our milk, yeah. right? Yeah. So tryptophan in the presence of a sugar, a simple sugar like lactose, which is in the milk, actually that means, see, the melatonin is produced in our brain. So we can... Um, have tryptophan and many amino acids, or some most amino acids, will cross the blood-brain barrier. But the way you enhance that crossing through the blood-brain barrier is to link 
the um, the tryptophan to a simple a carbohydrate, which is your sugar. So by having warm, hot milk, it does actually work a treat because tryptophan is the precursor to melatonin. So it goes tryptophan, serotonin, melatonin. And so by having warm, hot milk, or it doesn't have to be hot or mm-hmm. warm, just mm-hmm. milk, yep. um, will actually enhance that going to sleep routine. And the other thing is that once you start doing that, then it's almost conditioning. It's like Pavlov's dog. You know, I, I have to have the milk. I will go. I'm very powerful to go to sleep at night. And the things that will prevent you from sleeping. So limit your caffeine after midday, especially as you get older. Alcohol is a sleep stealer. Um, if you have enough of it, it will c- comatose you. But after about five hours, you'll be awake and unable to get back to sleep. A large meal within three hours of bedtime will. Um, it can very much fragment your sleep and exercise in three hours of bedtime. So if you exercise after 7 uh, p.m. at night, it actually delays your body clock. So it means that you won't be ready to go to sleep. So you know how I said the body clock set at 6 o'clock in the morning when you get up? Well, if you exercise after 7 o'clock at night, it actually delays the body clock. So even if you get up at 6, you'll find it very difficult to go to sleep at 10. And so those are things you can do during the day which will help you sleep at night. And at night, obviously, the light and things like that. Just explain to me briefly about the whole blue light and how Mm. that impacts. So, as you know, light is a spectrum. And so it goes from the red to the the blue light, blue purple. Um, And so blue light actually does reduce the brain's capacity to produce melatonin. Now, we, we produce melatonin. How it works is our eye detects the level of light, feeds back to the middle of the brain, starts to produce melatonin. And in about an hour after it starts to produce, or an hour and a half, you're ready to go to sleep. All right. But blue light will prevent the brain from producing the melatonin. Okay, So it does reduce the capacity. And so very popular at the moment are these blue light filters. Okay, These glasses you see oh, people wearing before bed. Everyone loves them. And do they work? Well, people forget there's a other side to this. It's white light, right? So if you cut out your blue light, what are you going to get more of? Red light. If you think about nature and red, what does it mean? Danger. Danger. Vigilance. Vigilance. Good. I'm so pleased you said that, Amelia, because in fact, red light is very alerting. And so it's one way that you... When people work shift at four o'clock in the morning, what you do is have red light um, because that alerts the brain and you produce a lot of the awake hormones. So we can cut out the blue light in the home, but we're still going to have a lot of these awake hormones and that level of alert happening. So we're not bringing the brain down to where it needs to be to go to sleep. So blue light, red light. Yes, the research is obvious. You know, the blue light prevents melatonin, but red light actually alerts the brain. So the best thing you can do is switch off to that one hour before bed because both lights aren't great for sleep. For mums that aren't getting that good quality nighttime sleep, talk to me about daytime naps and their effectiveness. Look, daytime naps, um, we refer to them as power naps, can be very effective, especially if you do it in your dip of alertness around about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, if you've got the opportunity to do so. You want to restrict them to 20, 25 minutes because if you have any longer than that, you can go into your deep sleep and waking up from deep sleep is just Oh, you feel terrible. I hate that. Yeah, you get something called sleep inertia and it's not good. So 
set the alarm for 20, 25 minutes and lay down on the couch or go into bed or whatever and then close your eyes. If you fall asleep, that's really great. Um, some people might only sleep for five minutes of that 20 minute and that's okay too. And if you don't get to go to sleep, it means you're not tired enough to do so. So it's not a not a big deal. Some people actually at about three o'clock in the morning, I've seen this written out there as a hint that before you have your power nap, you have a a coffee because when you wake up, it takes about 20 minutes for caffeine to have effect. So you wake up from the effects of the caffeine. My uh, qualification on that is a coffee at three o'clock in the afternoon can you affect your ability to go to sleep at nine o'clock at night. So use that with caution if you're doing it in an afternoon power nap. But the power nap, what it does is actually reduce that um, neurotransmitter that I talked about, adenosine. And because it reduces that, when you wake up, um, you've got the sense that you're not as tired. So it will keep you going quite well for the next four or five hours and it does not affect your ability to get to sleep that night. So it can work a treat. I use it all the time. Mm. For mums out there that wake up at three or four in the morning or get woken up at three or four in the morning, you lay back into bed and bing, your brain is in overdrive. How can you help yourself get back to sleep in those times? All right. So you can do a couple of things at that time. If you feel like your brain's going to overdrive because you've got undone work, like it goes over and over. So have something by your bed, write those things down. So once it gets out of your brain, in the book, your brain's very clever. It says, I don't want to worry about that anymore. But if it's only rubbish going through your brain, one thing, a very simple thing you can do is go to your breath. And often we make breathing a bit more complicated than it needs to be. So my advice is focus on your breath. Start to breathe in for one and out for two. In for one and out for two. Now this is a very calming breath and you will notice that your breathing rate will actually start to decrease. And when your breathing rate starts to decrease, your heart rate goes down and your blood pressure goes down and your nervous system activity goes down. And we start to stimulate something called the parasympathetic system, which is your sleeping system. And so that's very powerful message to the brain to this is time to sleep. So just focus on your a breath, and maybe try to take yourself to a place that you like. You know, a bit of mindfulness. There are lots of things you can do then. But I would always start on the breath. One parting question for you, for our mums out there, for all of us sleep-deprived mums who a lot of it is not self-inflicted. That's right. What's one piece of advice that we could take away from today to help us thrive when we're feeling sleep-deprived? Right. So... Try not to be sleep deprived in the first place. So make sleep a family issue. Educate your children from a very early age. But it, it's also important to start setting, even if it's aspirational to start, start off with, maybe set the alarm, I mean, it's, uh, going, get you going to bedtime that little bit earlier. Because if you're not getting enough sleep, and try to track your sleep. If you're not getting enough sleep night after night, try to work out where the drain is from. Is it because you're you know, binge watching something because you feel like that's relaxing? If that's the case, then you know, cut that down. So try to work out where the leak is happening and fill it up with sleep. <laughs> Carmel, thank you so much for coming in today. I feel relaxed and calm and I'm looking forward to having a good sleep tonight. Oh, Amelia, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Healthy Her was presented by me, Amelia Phillips, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Live Proud, sound production by Matt Nikolich. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. 
To hear more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. Download the free Podcast One Australia app or search Healthy Her. And for more tips and insights on this topic, visit my show notes at ameliaphillips.com.au.